Hello and welcome to the Fresh Air Sci-Fi Show. I'm Joe. I'm Dave. I'm Chris. And I'm Philip. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, if you saw it, a, a trial of a new intro. It's still got some things I need to work out on it. <laughs> uh, especially clicking the wrong thing on the way in, but <laughs> But we're getting there. We're getting there. We're trying new things. Um, <laughs> you you got to try new things, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it would help if we were just, you know, ever on time to start. <laughs> <laughs> but that takes far too much organization we for me. <laughs> we were on time for us tonight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Only just. Relatively speaking. Relatively. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, Danny, nice to see you here. How you doing? Uh, tonight we're, we're doing something that is uh, going to be a bit more uh, fun and upbeat, I hope. <laughs> we're uh, covering <coughs> off something. Could be quite disgusting, in a very pleasurable way. <laughs> like all the best things are. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, it brings us on to tonight's topic, doesn't it? It's it's one of those things that is a bit of a, a, a paradox in itself. So, Dave, would you, you like to kick things off for us tonight? Okay. So, what we'll be discussing is something from aesthetics. Mostly because I feel like um, aesthetics is underappreciated. And the questions it, it asks aren't kind of appreciated or talked about much, but they're fun questions to ponder. Like with the, you know, is it rational to be scared of a horror film and things like that. This one is kind of along the same lines in that it asks, is it rational for people to seek out art, art that gives them sort of like a negative experience? Is it rational to seek out... Um, art that horrifies you or disgusts you or causes you sadness or to feel morose we in life we generally don't like to feel those things and we we don't go around looking for those things we don't go to the local hospital and say excuse me do you mind if we just watch your next operation <laughs> are you allowed or, to do that because i might not since the victorian <laughs> times i don't think you just had to pretend you were a student Ooh, I might be able to do it. <laughs> I don't think it would work with your current degree. You might have been able no. to swing it with your previous one, but definitely I'm not doing your some aesthetics research, honest. <laughs> uh, but yeah, generally, I mean, you you have things like thrill seekers who seek out danger, but they're not seeking out the danger so much as the pleasure that comes from the adrenaline rush. Yeah, mm -hmm. and like a fighter. They go out and they look for a fight, which causes them pain, but it's not the pain that they're seeking. It's the pleasure of the win or the fight or, you know, that kind of thing. Sense of superiority. Or... Yeah, it's it's for the positive effects. And generally, with anything, we seek it out because it gives us some kind of pleasure. Even smoking, we know it's bad for us, yet we still do it because of certain pleasures that it brings us. Hmm. So why then do we go out and look at films, read literature, things like that, that horrify us or sadden us or things like that? And that's what the paradox of negative uh, emotions asks. I mean, when someone looks at that, is there anything akin to the sort of, you know, response that they get from 
uh, other works. So, you know, like you were talking about how there, there might be, say, uh, uh, an adrenaline rush from doing something scary and, you know, that sort of feeling. Is it, uh, does it end up being the same sort of response as that? You know, that, that it's something that's, um, uh, and then they feel better just from not looking at it anymore. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Oftentimes people see these kind of artworks and they don't turn away. They're not motivated to not look anymore. They're captivated or they find something in it that keeps them watching. Is it like the old so, adage of, uh, you, know, you know, you can't help but stare at a car crash? Well, that's the other one to ask, you know. I mean, people go out and when they drive by a car crash and they see a bloody body on the side of the road, they don't turn away. No. They actually, you know, they've got a term rubbernecking for the whole experience. So why then do we seek out things that horrify us? I mean, in some examples, there's obviously going to be an easy answer to that, which is just fascination. Take, um, I don't know if you are aware of the Body Worlds exhibition. Is that the sliced one? That the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, a lot of people find that kind of thing horrific. I went to see it uh, probably 20 years ago now, and I particularly found it mesmerizing and fascinating, whereas other people who were there were getting really kind of nauseated, and I saw people leave as soon as they walked in. I don't know what they were expecting. I mean, yeah, fairly... <laughs> graphic in and of themselves so they walk in but then when they're faced with it all of a sudden but they have gone and sought out something that they found terrific but for me it was fascinating yeah, yeah. so there's the curiosity element there which obviously in itself because you're ticking some sort of box even though it might be something that could be repulsive and you might go that's a bit gross but actually oh and what about that? And what does this bit do? And, oh, I never knew that when you sliced it there, that's how that looked. Um, in the example of, you know, the, the exhibition you're talking about. And in the same sort of thing with uh, a car crash, there's obviously the curiosity of, crap, you know, are they going to be okay? What's happened to them? How bad are they injured? Uh, is this what death looks like? There's or almost a morbid a curiosity. Uh, kind of oh shit that's what could have happened to me in car yeah, yeah. as well yeah but i now, think there's yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, no, i was just wanted... gonna say <laughs> you then have to transfer that to art and would it be the same thing sorry philip yeah no i, I was i was about to switch sort of like gears a bit in, in, in the sense that i think some of it um especially when it comes to fear can be linked to this i think i think there's like pleasure to be had in situations where there is something that is genuinely sort of dangerous or or sort of like you you can recognize it as sort of a bad situation but but there's this sort of separator that you can rationally know is there like for example a movie screen or something where you know yeah. that whatever is there cannot really harm you but but there is sort of this excitement of getting as close as possible while still understanding that like rationally at least that you're being safe in, in a sense i think, I think that there's something quite interesting though because although i mean i absolutely agree there is that degree of separation which means you know that it can't harm you but then at that point why are you still getting scared there's yeah, still a part of you which does believe that there is actual real present danger uh, it seems that in itself is quite paradoxical as well yeah that yeah that's the um 
paradox of fictional emotions, like um, Kendall Walton speaks about this, where when you're sat at the cinema, you claim to feel fear or have the emotion of fear at the blob on the screen, but it doesn't motivate you to call the army in or you feel a tense moment in a horror film where the lead actress is about to be stabbed in the shower. It doesn't motivate you to call the cops on the killer on the screen. So he argues that you're not actually feeling the emotion that you're claiming to feel. It's a sort of make-believe emotion. You know you're engaging with this work, and it's sort of, think of kind of a social contract where you allow yourself to be engaged by this work, and you appreciate it for what it's doing, the music, the tone, the lighting, the feeling that it's giving you, and you allow yourself to enter into the world while still knowing that it's not. A real thing and you know deep down that it's not really fear it's a kind of quasi fear yeah i mean this was what our stream was about last week on sweet emotions and it was separating the the feeling from the emotion and is there a difference and obviously there's the feeling of fear but for it to actually be the emotion of fear there has to be a bit more engagement engagement so if you're actually feeling an emotion of fear as dave mentioned you'd call the the police officer on the person killing on the screen or you'd run out the house and run down the road you're not actually feeling it you are putting yourself into that story and maybe suspending a little bit of disbelief but it's not a complete suspension of your disbelief because you're not fully engaged and actually there's um, a question that's come in the chat which is uh relevant and it is in the instance of scary or disturbing films, is it a chance to experience feelings of previous trauma in a way that is safe and controlled? I think it's partly experiencing previous trauma, but also partially using it as a way to prepare yourself for potential future trauma as well. Or maybe even a way to experience trauma from other people. You know, uh, sometimes it's hard to have empathy for a situation that you haven't experienced yourself in any way, shape or form. You don't understand what it's actually like until you have felt these feelings. And then you go, oh, crap, right. I really understand why this person is in this situation. Um, another part of it is, yeah, just a flight of fantasy, a curiosity, as, as you mentioned already. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how you're engaging with the work. I mean, it could also be what Aristotle calls a kind of catharsis where you have these experiences of emotions that you don't know how to let out. So by experiencing them, through the proxy of the medium that you're watching, you can purge these excess of feelings. Oh, Danny's also put in a, a good comment. Um, so uh, norepinephrine and cortisol are as addictive to your body as dopamine and serotonin. Uh, fight or flight desires become sought after, especially if the feeling is nostalgic in some ways, such as traumatic incidents as a child, kind of like a Stockholm syndrome for the emotions. And that's a, a really great point as well, because there, there can be this addictive quality to these experiences. And again, though, you would then have to generalize that to literature or a, a painting, you know, that kind of artwork, a statue, 
like film medium is very different to say a painting or a sketch or a particular photo because films can use music to set a kind of mood. I mean, mm. if you think about when we listen to music, it causes us to feel particular things like thrash has a sort of dark feeling to it. Hip, older hip hop has a kind of bouncy feeling to it. That's why John Carpenter made great use of music during his horror films. Like think of the Halloween theme. As soon as you hear that, you know that it's a killer chasing a victim. Yeah, the way horror films especially use music is incredible for how it kind it's of artistic. Builds off, starts off kind of low in the background and slow and builds up and builds up as a way to build the tension yeah. along with the visuals. It's very clever. I mean, I yeah, think all films... Also, Sorry, go yeah, for it, Philip. No, I mean, you can tell in horror films, especially if, if you try to watch the same scene with the sound off, like it, the... It doesn't work. The difference is very striking, <laughs> like more so than with, with other films, but it's like genuinely a, a massive difference if, if, you, if you don't. Uh, I think it's the same for other emotions in films as well. Like if, you, if there's anything that's overly sad or anything like that, it's the accompaniment of the music that drifts you down that way, the minor keys, and, and you just feel really somber. And it's just, you, you're welling up before the thing's already happened. You're feeling the emotion before it's happened. Yeah. So, I mean, well, what you mean there, though, Dave, is, you know, how do you transfer something like that to, say, reading a book or looking at a piece of art? Now, uh, with the exception of something like the piece of art that Kristen brought up, if you're talking maybe just a disgusting sculpture or, or something like that, is that sort of how do you transfer that? Yeah, because... It depends on the format as well, because I'm sure the larger art galleries probably take advantage of this kind of thing and have Thematic. background music in different parts. Yeah. Um, but... It... If you were to just look at a piece of art without music, like um, if you look at the scream, it kind of brings out a certain emotion in you. You can feel kind of feel the terror in the thing or um, other artworks that display like pain and suffering. Or you think about, uh, sorry to bring it around to religion, but if you think about the tale of Jesus being flayed and dragged through the city and wearing the crown of thorns, that inhibits a certain emotional response to you and you don't need the music, but yet people are drawn to that imagery. Um, but you can almost hear and feel. The pain, yeah. Um, and if you bring it back around to, say, Mel Gibson films with Mel Gibson's passion, it's a pretty gory and brutal film and people still go back to watch it and find something beautiful in it. Mm. Yeah. Like, I don't. I, I thought it was a terrible film. but I've never seen it. I avoided it. <laughs> so I'm just imagining. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm seeking out. Yeah, but if you think of, like, um, the tale of Anna Karenina, is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. People are saddened by what happens to the heroine in that story. Like, they're overwhelmed by tragedies, um, and they'll feel sadness, and yet they'll still go back to these tales. And they'll actively seek out these tales. So it's not the manipulation of the imagery and the lighting. It's the actual emotion that draws them to it. As well as, say, linguistic structure, the artistry of the words, the poetry in motion, you know, that kind of thing. 
Though isn't some of that feeling the opposite emotion, though? If you feel sad, you know, if something actually makes you upset and ball your eyes out and, uh, you know, you, you, you've watched, whether it's a film or it's a piece of art or something you're reading, afterwards you feel better. So you get that relief after the oh. fact and you're like, ah, I feel, you know, quite content right now. Um, so in in that regard, if... If there's an extreme negative emotion, it's the positive after the fact. Are there any people that look for just the negative? That's the question, isn't it? I mean, is it just the negative emotion that they're feeling or is there something more to the experience than just feeling the negative emotion? I mean, I think think there's definitely something more. And I think to, to sort of connect with what Joe said, I think... You, you can tell sometimes, I think it might be sort of subconscious, but there might be a part where you, you, you look at something that is happening that is bad and you imagine your, yourself, you're kind of, kind, of, kind of transposing yourself into that situation. But what makes you feel good is realizing that you are not actually in that situation, but <laughs> that you could be sort of in that situation. And so, you know, you feel, you feel the pain for what would have been, but then you recognize that that is not the case. And therefore sort of, you feel this relief and maybe this relief is what you're actually seeking sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, I think you can make it pretty easy. So sorry. Um, Go ahead. Carry on. I was going to expand. I mean, area. Yeah, it, I just wanted to, like, I think it's fairly, uh, there is a fairly obvious observation that for most people, if you just sort of give them the opportunity to watch um, sort of a painting of something bad and give them the opportunity to actually to actually experience that, right? I mean, this might be a sort of an obvious point, but there is a difference because nobody or most people at least wouldn't choose to actually experience that thing while, while looking at it still sort of is attractive to them. So, so there must be something that is qualitatively different between these two experiences that, that drives and, one towards and on one that, the other. If it's a pain thing as well, there are people who do enjoy pain. But again, that's a different response to feeling pain as pain. It's feeling pleasure as pain. Yeah, Not something like Michel Foucault, who was very much into punishment but got pleasure from it because of the bondage scene and things like that. Mm. So there are times where the pain is the pleasure. There's also instances where pain is not being used as a pleasure, but exposing yourself to a certain amount of pain in a controlled environment gives you control over well, real life control over the pain, yeah. which yeah. then... It's not that you're enjoying the pain. It's just that stuff hurts, but now this hurts and I've got control over this bit. There is the control yeah. aspect. But again, you're yeah. not seeking the pain for the pain. You're seeking the pain for the control, or you're seeking the pain for the pleasure, or you're, see- you know, you're not seeking the negative for the negative. You're seeking the negative for the positive. Yeah, which also is where I was going to go before about you uh, where we were discussing how you go for sadness because of the cathartic feeling of pleasure afterwards. I don't think it's always necessarily the case. And what I would bring up as an example is music. I was your very stereotypical depressed goth kid when I was a teenager. And when I went and listened to slow, depressing Marilyn Manson songs, for example, 
I wasn't doing it because I felt a catharsis afterwards. I listened to it to be sad, but because somebody was producing a song about it, I didn't feel so lonely in my sadness because it was something you can identify with. Something you can identify with. Something you can feel. This this speaks to me. So again, it's it's not necessarily speaking to the sadness for the relief. And I, maybe I was too quick to say, well, this is this. Um, I was sort of eighty twenty sort of rule. But it, again, even with that, you're you're speaking of a, a a different quality to simply just being sad. Yes. Yeah. Normally, at least. I mean, I'm sure there are times when people do listen to sad songs just because they want to feel sad for a bit, though. Well, yeah, it's 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 interesting though, like why people would want, like I can I can relate to that because sometimes there's generally like I can feel this desire sometimes to just like sort of be melancholic in a sense, right? Like to be to to feel the sadness for what it is, and and, and I'm fine with that, right? I'm. I wouldn't say like that. This seems contradictory, right? But like I'm, I'm content in feeling that, and it's okay. And and I, I'm seeking it sometimes because I don't know. It makes like it makes sense in certain scenarios. I don't know how to tell. I, I don't know quite how to put my finger on it, right? But it's still I don't know. There's it's there's still probably something else there, right? That needs to needs to be fulfilled. And and sadness, of course, plays a role as well in general in in life. And and I think. You know, we shouldn't sort of try to avoid sadness in general and run from it. Like you can get into very bad places if you try to do that. I think so. There is a utility to that, and I think whatever that is, sort of this self-reflection, maybe or something at the bottom of this, is what what draws you sometimes to these sorts of emotions. Maybe perhaps yeah, sometimes it, as well, it's a a way to explain a situation or something that you're feeling yourself as well. Uh, there's something that you can, I mean, if you think about how there's, there's, uh, plenty of different unseen illnesses, you know, whether they're mental disorders or physical disorders or whatever. Um, and and it, it can be hard to explain that to, to someone else, but sometimes through these mediums, you can at least try and explain some of that as well. That's one of the arguments that comes forward in this, um, like, if we think about what Kristen has just said, Hume sort of speaks of enjoying a tragedy um, because even though it it causes you these feelings, you the overall experience gives you something more. It gives you, like, it enables you to feel something and the overall reward for feeling that tragedy is more than the actual emotion that you you feel, the negative emotion. And it's it's converted into something greater and something slightly more powerful. Mm. And the same, uh, another one of the arguments is, like Philip mentions, it's about feeling the human condition. Art enables us to feel the human condition. And part of that human condition is those certain emotions like melancholy, disgust. And it, it just enables us to enjoy the human experience or understand the human experience. There's uh, a few comments that have come in that uh, I think I'll quickly go through now before we move on to the next bit. Um, Danny says, uh, personally, I stay away from horror 
and psychological thriller genres, much to my husband's dismay. I'm a rom-com buff. Nothing wrong with a rom-com. I do enjoy a good rom-com, but I love a good horror. The problem is finding a good horror. (laughs) Most horrors are those jump horrors and they're crap. (laughs) If you want a really, really good horror, don't listen to Dave's suggestions. (laughs) Caveat was amazing. Uh, and uh, talk off. Uh, is that another Dave? I think that might be who you are. Sorry if I've forgotten. Uh, pain removed of its purpose, a warning of potentially mortal danger. It simply becomes uh, another sensation. A sensation accompanied <laughs> accompanied by some really good all natural drugs. Uh, I mean, yeah. So that that's along the lines of what we were saying. You know, some people might seek certain pain or other. Uh, emotive things just to the relief that you get afterwards or or sometimes even during uh, those things. But it could be some other reasons that you're searching for it as well. Uh, Icarus is singing along in in the chat room. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Danny says, uh, perhaps, oh, hang on, I need to switch screen to be able to read this one. Perhaps because we are conditioned to repress our true life sadness or anger, that music is such a powerful release. Society doesn't approve of our true emotions, and it's quite impatient about negative emotions. That's a really fair point, actually. I've often thought that life would generally be better if everybody had a theme going on all the time. It's one of the things I used to love about walking around with a set of headphones in because I did have my theme and whatever I was feeling at the time, I would put something on. Or if I wanted to change the way I was feeling, I'd put something that started the way I was feeling and I'd have a playlist of, right, now I'm feeling a bit somber, but this one makes me think a bit. And then I'm going to put on something a bit more upbeat. And I would change my mood through the music. Um, I think it's quite interesting to touch on music a little bit more as well, because we're talking specifically about sadness. But I think with music especially, it broaches more emotions like anger. There are some really good angry songs that I'll go and listen to (laughs) because actually at the moment I want to be fucking angry. It's fucking healthy for me to be angry at the moment and I'm going to perpetuate that by listening to Break Stuff by Limp Biscuit. (laughs) Limp Biscuit, uh, get out. I mean, I won't listen to many of their songs because they're generally <laughs> trash. But that's a damn good angry song, and I defy it was. Yeah, uh, uh, it was a good one. I think they but had about three or four different. good tracks. <laughs> Is it really different to say that we can do it for anger and it we mm. accept it in its own right for anger, but then for sadness, we're trying to look for something deeper, something else further on that we're looking for why is it different for sadness than it is for anger is the anger just anger though emotions you could say they're both purging of particular emotions allowing you to express emotions that you are building up inside you that you don't have a direct connection to and the music allows you to transform those emotions into something actual and release them Uh, but i don't think that's right I don't think it's right because purging implies that you're getting rid of it. Oh, no, no. It just means bringing it to the surface and allowing it to extend itself into the forefront. Okay. Purge from the repression rather than purge completely from your body. But even that starts the process of it not being so 
repressed, which again, there's that slightly different aspect. And then it could end up with a full purge as well. But doesn't have to. And that's what I'm no, saying. No. With anger, we, we seem to understand that with anger, we can do it just to be more angry because we want to be. But with sadness, not so much for some reason. Why is it different? Yeah, different emotions. Different. <laughs> yeah, I think I think because sadness tends to be generally sort of considered like if you want to identify a spectrum of positive and negative emotions, you have sort of sadness and happiness on one side. So it sort of feels weird to to talk about sort of um, sadness in terms of the final final goal, while while anger is sort of like a vector somewhere in between, right? You, you don't have to. It's not necessarily. It's not really sadness. You're not feeling really sad when you're angry. Sort of there, there's something else that is going on there, and I think perhaps that is why you don't you don't necessarily need, feel the need to to explain it so much as as with sadness, which is generally considered sort of the the polar opposite of of what is generally considered something that people want or something. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Because I wouldn't even include anger as being on the same scale as happiness and sadness. Yeah, I agree. But you can also be happy angry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you could sort of think of it this way, I guess. Anger is motivating. Anger will get you to do things and it will prompt you to try and smash the system or stand up to your bully or something like that. Whereas sadness is more frowned upon because it creates a more more of a solitude. It causes you to withdraw. It's demotivating. Um, so perhaps in our societies, we're taught not to be lonely. We're taught to get ourselves out there and be motivated. So people are kind of drawn away from it just because of societal pressure and the solitude that it causes and the feelings of loneliness or um, separation, that kind of thing. So... Yeah. Are we saying that we've probably got some significant pockets of of uh, emotions here, some that are more motivating than others? Uh, I guess you know happiness in or at least the feeling of being content, you're generally not motivated to do much more. You might still be motivated to continue doing the same things you're doing, but if you actually feel content, you're not actually inspired to change anything or necessarily chase improvements that might make you more happy, but you're actually, I'm okay at the moment. Um, and sadness, especially uh, depression, um, and, and they are different, but can, as you, as you mentioned, make you sink into a deep hole and, uh, you know, <laughs> not feel like you can, can move out of it. Um, not so get out of bed. Exactly. But with 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 anger, as you mentioned, you know you you want to buck against the system or whatever is causing you this anger. It might take you a while to get angry enough to do what needs to be done, but you need that anger there to do it. What are other thing other emotions that that are as motivating or or at least somewhat motivating in the way anger is? Lust, jealousy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I think boredom is one and. Like this might feel counterintuitive, but I'm generally frustrated sometimes, especially now because there seems to be this complete like war on boredom, right? Like uh, you have to get rid of it at all costs, right? You have all apps and like thousands of apps on your phones that are designed to get rid of that. But I think like that is actually in some situations quite powerful, right? Because it's generally very hard to to be bored for a very long time, and and it 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 is like 
sometimes helpful to feel that because it motivates you to, to, to get up and do stuff, right? That you wouldn't otherwise do. But if there is something that can quickly kill the boredom, you never get to that effect, right? You never get to doing the thing that you would do um, because you can kill it quickly. You don't have to feel it. And so you're just spending time on your phone and stuff. So I think that is actually something that I've, um, yeah, I've experienced as well. Yeah, I, I think social media and all of that, you're, you're right. There's almost too much entertainment at our fingertips now. Yeah. We're too engaged. We're too, look. you know, you're getting that dopamine hit. Oh, look, I got that like. Oh, I got that share. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On and on and on. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you, oh, I'll just play this game whilst I wait to see if someone re responds to yeah. that message. And you don't have that point where you're bored and you go... All right, I'll go cut the grass. <laughs> exactly, right? because, because if you're bored, right, like at some point you're just going to do the thing that you have to do because it's like you either there sit for the next three hours doing nothing, staring at the wall, or you actually do something. But if you can kill the boredom, you're never going to get to anything, like at least most of the time, right? And so I think that is, that is actually a, a big problem. At least no, I, I don't want to overstate it, but it is uh, somewhat of a problem, I think. At least I found in my life that that is a bit of a thing that I have to be, yeah. Actually, Danny, Danny agrees with you here. She says, uh, I am driven to rash decisions by complacency. Uh, and I mean, that's going along, uh, along the same sort of path. Yeah. Just catching up with the chat. Sorry, guys. Right. <laughs> Luke says, excitement drove him here. <laughs> But uh, he's on the way to watch uh, Black Widow. Ah, awesome. Uh, well, enjoy that, dude. And he'll be nice. here with us on Thursday um, to discuss testimony <laughs> in a roundabout way. Uh, Black Widow already. Any good? Yeah. It was all right. I loved it. I'm really? not a super huge Marvel fan, so. but it so, was an enjoyable action film. I do like my uh, Marvel, Marvel Marvel stuff, but I'm not a big fan of either Black Widow or ScarJo. So, <laughs> um, but you know, to Florence their Pugh own. was really good in it. Who? Florence Pugh, um, the younger sister in Black Widow. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, it's still one I'll check out, but my expectations are low, which hopefully means I'll enjoy it more. Um, we've got another one as well. Uh, Bat Bible says. Uh, after my first severe depression, I sought out extreme emotions. I think mostly to affirm that I could really feel them profoundly again. And then I was really happy I could be really sad again. <laughs> uh, that That's actually um, a really good point as well. And something that I know I've experienced myself. Uh, I, I find especially when you get stuck in something like depression, it, it feels like that's about the only thing that you can really ever feel. Um, it's sometimes mixed with a bit of anger and <laughs> that's just sort of where you're stuck. Um, but it's interesting that you, you sort out extreme emotions. Is there anything that you'd like to tell us that you actually did? Um, Danny finds apathy incredibly itchy. Um, as in other people being ap uh, apathetic or you being apathetic yourself? Um, are you talking about how if you find yourself procrastinating over something, you start getting a bit itchy? Would that be a case of like we were talking about how we can be 
quite apathetic to the things that we need to do because we're so attached to these things and on social media and all of that thing that we're we're not bored um, and we do procrastinate over other things that we need to do because we've got our instant reward system at our fingertips. Uh, is that the sort of thing that you find makes you itchy? Uh, and yeah, that's it. They're just talking about Black Widow now. <laughs> okay. So there's been a lot of great responses to this problem by everybody. Um, including everybody in the chat. And in the literature, there's actually five groups of types of responses to these problems. And each one contains several different responses. And a lot of the responses that have been brought up tonight are very similar to those kinds of responses. Well done, everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so when we have a paradox, what a paradox is, is... A group of statements. If we were to take each statement on its own, it would appear to be true individually. But when you group them all together, one of them seems to be they can't all be true at the same time. Um, so officially stated, the paradox is this. First statement, people avoid things that provide painful experiences and pursue things that provide pleasurable experiences. The second statement is... People have painful experiences in response to art that elicit some kind of painful response, like tragedies, melodramas, religious art, sad songs, horror, etc. And number three is people pursue these kinds of art. Now, when you attack a paradox, there's a few ways to do it. You can just deny the paradox, say that's not a paradox at all. You can accept the paradox and say, well, okay, it's paradoxical. And there's, there's nothing particularly illogical about accepting a paradox, depending on what the paradox is. Yeah, I mean, you could say, yes, okay, we do seek these things out, and it is a paradox, but that's just being human. Um, or you can attack each of the individual statements. And in this one, statement three isn't particularly controversial or anything. It's pretty obvious people do seek out these mediums, as we've been talking about. We seek out songs that bring out particular feelings in us, and... Premise one, you could sort of attack, but you could turn it around into sort of how Socrates explains that even when we see people going after something that we think is bad, they're going after it for the pleasure, not for the bad thing. So in this paradox, <clears throat> premise two is what's attacked, or statement two. And that's basically how you've been going about attacking it, you know, like denying statement two that it's not a painful experience that's being sought out. It might come with painful experiences, but that's not what's being sought out. See, I think I'm more attacking statement one, personally. I think it is an overly broad statement. I think it would be better to say people avoid most situations which cause pain or whatever the exact wording was. I don't think it is fair to say it as a completely generalized statement because yeah. I don't I I think most of it when we are trying to specifically feel that negative is about control which as Joe said you could class as being an attack on statement two but I don't think it necessarily is because you are still purposefully pursuing that negative not for a different feeling afterwards, not for a different emotion. You're taking control of that specific negative emotion. So I would attack 
statement one, not statement two. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think like even even so even what you said that uh, could be sort of an attack on statement one because like it's it's obvious that there like you can seek out experiences that sort of cause pain if these experiences cause you something good as well, right? Like if the net worth of that thing is going to be positive, right? It's sort of like, it's still going to cause you some pain, but you're probably going to go for it, right? It's sort of an easy attack on statement one because overall it's going to be positive. So like apart from what, um, from what was said so far, like I think this, and this is sort of what you said before, and I think it's, it's, it matches as an attack on, on statement one. But if they're doing it to transform the experience into something more positive, then it's the transformation that they're seeking rather than the actual painful experience. Yeah. So it, it could be. Is, yeah. Yeah, it could be both. Like, but but I think, I'm thinking even even in situations where sort of you're not you're not looking for these sort of transformations, right? It's just an experience that has some pain, and it's just pain, but then has an, a positive thing associated to it as well. Right, like there are two things separate, distinct. You know, separate things. Yeah, yeah. You, you could still see it as a thing where you would say, "Yeah, I'm going go. I'm going to go for it because of the like of the net positive I'm gaining, uh, something like that." But isn't yeah, that still a transform? Isn't that still transformative though? I, I don't see it. Like, it I think, yeah, I, I I suppose this is just an, a way of, like of conceptualizing this. But I, I think uh, you could see it both as okay, I'm feeling pain. And this pain is causing me to feel something good, or you can feel that you, you can you can have an experience that is just sort of like some pain, and this pain is isolated, and then there's some good that happens that is completely unrelated to this pain. But I'm going to go for it because of this sort of uh, um, yeah, these Could two you, things that I'm gaining. But an example of that be something like getting a tattoo. Where yeah, for for example, purpose. You're not seeking yeah. pain at all. It's just a necessary. Yeah, that, that's an excellent example. I don't I, like it doesn't fit well into the art sort of category, I think. But this isn't. Yeah, this is a very good example. Or sort of performing on stage for someone where he has sort of stage fright or something, right? That might be a negative experience that someone has, and it's not because this experience is going to be transformed in something else, but sort of he enjoys performing as a separate thing, and and he values that more or something. That could be another example. But yeah. But in that regard, is he actually seeking? the negative experience yeah. what you mentioned there he wants to act right so that's what he wants to do another side effect of acting is stage fright but afterwards he then feels good and they're three yeah, separate yeah, things but he's not seeking the stage fright in that yeah, regard I, I would agree with that like it, it depends how, how was it worded the first statement uh, could you read it again people avoid things that provide painful experiences and pursue things that provide pleasurable experience. Yeah. See, I, I guess, I guess I, I could sort of see how this wording of it could be attacked though in this way, because you could still say that that experience sort of provides pain, but you know, what, what I just said, right? Like about, yeah. about it, it provides pain, but you still go for it because there is something good about it. It's a good experience. That's also, it's almost the, the, they're they're seeking the good experience, but it, the good experience comes with a bad experience, yeah. and it's not a transformative bad experience in that in that sense. It's just yeah. you know I want to act, but also I get stage fright. These are two yeah. things that are yeah, sort of yeah. happening in parallel. Exactly. And yes, okay, there might be a good feeling at the end, and yes, you could regard that as a transformation of these two things coming together and the feeling of relief at the end. And yes, I did it, 
but that isn't what is being sought. What is being sought there is is the whole sort of acting thing, and it just happens to come with that. And they're what you're saying is they're not seeking a wholly positive experience all the time. They're accepting that there is some negative that comes yeah. along with the positive. So you can attack statement one in that way. Yeah, I think you could rephrase statement one as well very easily. You could say something like, you know, people don't seek uh, just negative experiences or something like that instead of like experiencing that cause negative feelings or something like that. Because at least in my mind, these are two different things that one, one of which, which could be attacked in this way. And the other one is sort of seems like overall the negative experience is present, like is, is much more pronounced. And I think that would be harder for me at least uh, to, to, to go against. Like, I don't think it's impossible, but, but I think it's, it's harder for me to, to um, yeah, argue against. Yeah, you could reword it something like, people don't pursue pain, they pursue pleasure. Yeah, I think, I, I think, yeah. But again, I still think that my attack on that would make that untrue. Yeah. Well, the, there are attacks against the first statement, and one of them is that there are certain things that we just accept come with painful experiences. But it's not the painful experience that we're after. We just accept that it is part of what comes with the experience we're looking for. But what my argument against it was is that sometimes you do actively seek that painful experience for the sake of it being painful so that you have an element of control over how much pain you're in at any given moment. Yeah, but that, that sort of seems to me to argue that you know you're you're doing that for the control, which is sort of a positive thing. In, like yeah. in a way, that that control that you are gaining over that is still something that is gonna like you could count it as a positive. Like I think it's very hard to to get out of that. Uh, mm. Maybe perhaps because I like sort of uh, I approach sort of arguing for against free will in this way as well. But <laughs> I, I like I find it hard to. Part of um, desire theory is that yeah, you know, yeah. the, the desire we want the most, which will be the control and not the pain. And if you suffer pain for long enough, you will do anything to kind of get control of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. Do, do something to get some kind of release from that pain, even if it's just briefly. So, yeah, I mean, I, many people do control. seek. Yeah, but many people do seek control pain, right? And I, I can imagine for different reasons. Um, I, I know, I, I think control is a big part of it, though. Now, is there anyone that actually seeks pain just for the pain? Just for the pain. Not for the release of endorphins that you might get afterwards, and not for the feeling of control because you're controlling the pain. Is there pain for just pain? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, think I, tend to, I tend to answer no to that. Like, I think there's whatever you want to call it. I think there's a base layer of stuff. So like, I don't want, there's a, um, I don't know how to express it, but like there, some people call it pleasure and, and pain, but maybe it's something deeper even, but there's some stuff that you sort of gravitate towards that you would want some desires. And then there's the opposite of that. And sort of all of these emotions sort of, I think sort of are reducible, at least the, the way you behave towards those emotions, I think could be reduced to this layer in some way, right? Like even if it's perhaps something that usually causes you to, to be sort of in pain or, or like usually causes you to be on the side which you would want to avoid, 
maybe there are some scenarios in which you either expect to 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 have like a higher um, kickback from what you what you're gonna do in this region that you would desire, or or maybe you you will get it immediately, right? But I think it's very hard to argue that you're not gonna like because my question would then be, well, why would you do that then? Sort of, mm. um, yeah, and yeah. Like it seems to me that whatever the answer to that is, it's going to be sort of answerable by appealing to this to this sort of schema at, at the at the bottom. It's generally why Socrates went after that kind of idea. That, that there is, even if we're seeking out something that we know is bad for us, we're not seeking it out for the badness, but for some other element of goodness that it brings to us. Yeah. Even if we might not understand what that goodness is our desires are towards whatever good thing consciously or unconsciously we feel it brings us. Yeah. And this is true though, because there are people who do intentionally self-destruct and they go after the bad thing because they know it's bad for them and they want to hit rock bottom. That's not seeking pleasure. That's not even seeking control. It's deliberately getting rid of control, deliberately seeking pain because they don't often at least they don't feel that they deserve to be in a better position. They don't feel they deserve to have control or happiness. And people do do that. That's true. Yeah. That's a good point. Yes, yes but like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the, the guy that's all the time. Yes, but the, like, it, it <laughs> do not me, turn I'm, this back round to free will. But I feel like, Whatever motivation, including this one, right? There seems to be like this motivation seems to be well. I don't, I don't deserve to be any any of that, right? But I'm doing something towards that desire that I have, which is sort of to um, to terminate this thing that I'm not worth of, worthy of, right? Some, yeah. In some sense, right? it is seeking a desire, but it is seeking a desire towards a negative outcome intention yeah that 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 might be like maybe maybe like uh, maybe i expressed it poorly before I, I do think that different people can have different sort of attitudes towards different things right i i, I think I, I could imagine someone that just likes or, or yeah enjoys pain or like that seems contradictory but uh, like that that gains something from feeling pain let's just say this uh to generalize Right, but but my point would be that well, that that still maps to this sort of desire that he has, right? Whatever, I don't I don't know if it's correct to categorize that as pleasure, really, because pleasure is usually thought of as something sometimes even physical, right? But sometimes that he's drawn to, let's just say, right, something that he yeah is actively seeking in in a way, and and if that is feeling physical pain, then he'll do that. Right. And in, in most people, that is probably not going to be the case. And I think you can sort of have patterns in general populations, but I, I, I am fully open to the possibility of there being exceptions. Uh, what I don't think, though, there are exceptions to is this basic setup, right? That there are things that whatever those things are, uh, like a person is drawn to and, and uh, things that he's not drawn to in, in a sense. And uh, yeah, well, every explanation seems to bottom out, at least to me, in this sort of 
uh, conceptualization, I guess. But in that regard, they may be drawn to something negative and they might be fulfilling that, but they're drawing they're drawn to the negative in this instance for the negative rather than drawn to the, ne- you know, for any form of positive. It's not for a control reason. It's not to feel anything other than I. they're so low, they're, they're undeserving. And Danny actually brings something up uh, that's in line with this. Um, people who are stuck in real pain often seek more pain, I believe, such as people who are grieving. I think the grieving process in some people can really bring out ways of feeling pain differently uh, than their overwhelming grief, if that makes sense. Um, and she then corrects her there because she got it wrong. <laughs> well done. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that with that one, I would think, that that is to do with the control element that I was talking about. But with the um, self-destructive cycle, the framing, yes, I do agree with you, Philip, about how it is still approaching or trying to reach for a desire. But framing it around this particular paradox, I think that that does argue against it again. There isn't a desire or a an ultimate goal of a positive. It is fundamentally negative at every level. And that completely argues against position one of the paradox. And I mean, I I mean, in that regard, it, it, it's going to be people like that are going to be very few and far between in, in comparison to the general people. But it does, if we're taking that statement one as a rule for all, well, you've given an example that I think really works to say, well, no, it's not always that rule. I think statement two has been much easier to argue against because of most of these things seeming to have a transformative part to it. But there are examples where it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, you could use it to argue against statement one, um, but that wouldn't explain the average population going around and doing it. Because there seems to be the average average person who seeks out these things for more than just the negative emotion, or they they don't seek the pain, they seek the pleasure. That's why I said when I initially attacked statement one that it should be rephrased to say most, not yeah, 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 yeah. But like, it is it is incorrect? Yeah, yeah I, I do just, think the. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say I just took um. There's a whole bunch of different ones in the way that this is worded. Like you can have Tim O'Neill's version, Alan Smuts' version. Um, you could go with Play-Doh's. There is a whole bunch of different versions of these, and I just took this one from Alan Smuts' paper because that's what I was reading at the time. There are those that worded in a more general fashion as well. Yeah, I think if it's more generalized, I don't necessarily disagree with that. But in a blanket statement, I think it's demonstrably wrong. I think that yeah. demonstrated it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. But I, I don't know if I agree with the sort of saying that like self-destructive behavior is sort of negative at every level. In a sense that, like from the from the outside, it might seem so. But I don't think internally for for the for the person doing that uh, that it is so it, for them. For, it for could them the, be. Sorry, sorry, Chris. It very much can be. I have been there. Okay, I'm not like I'm not trying to argue against personal experience of of people. Um, 
Yeah. But there could be an uh, an element of destruction breeds creation. You know, once you get yourself to that point where you have absolutely destroyed everything, then you're free to do anything and you can build up from there. And every experience past that could be. And if you were seeing it in that way, I'd agree. It's a long-term transform- transformative uh, thing. Uh, but I'm not sure I would agree that everybody who is being self-destructive is actually thinking that far ahead. Um, no, no, I like, I wasn't, I wasn't going for that though. Like I, I it, the, the feeling of, of sort of dis- destroying something is usually sort of like, if, if you see something that you dislike sometimes, right, then, then you have this tendency to dis- to, to, to want to remove it some, some, somehow. Right, but but this idea that you're going to remove it is sort of still based in this idea that once you do this removing, it's going to be sort of um, there's going to be something positive in, in a sense to come, coming out from that, and and I think it can be framed in in that way. But I don't like I I I don't want to talk as if I knew what what it feels like because I genuinely don't. Right, I have other types of experiences, but I don't have that type of experience, so I don't want to to. uh, impose this sort of thing i think that that is an absolutely valid way of looking at it unless the thing that you're trying to remove is yourself (laughs) yeah i don't i don't think it's correct right like sort of from from an outside standpoint right but I, i think it might feel from the subject standpoint like that is the right thing to do even though it's obvious like we we could all agree that is not the right thing to do okay but i again i I don't want to, um, yeah. So I got another comment from Danny as well. Um, I, I also think society uh, emphasizes the glory of pain, sadness, addiction, anger, grief, uh, and many people find themselves as a victim of sociological influence. And I think that could be very true, especially as sometimes it can be seen as uh, overcoming hard hardship being one of those things that's really good to do. You're, you're triumphing over by the bootstrap. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think especially in places like America, there is that, that attitude where, you know, you're supposed to struggle and you'll get over and I've done it and you should too. And the people who does are deserving of the reward are the ones that, you know, in that sort of situation. People who don't understand what society is for. <laughs> yeah. The whole point is that we do the hard bits so that people don't have it hard again. <laughs> that's the point. That ah. What, 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 what do we call them? <laughs> and in general, people who also like. I, People that say this a lot tend to be people that I think didn't really experience what it's like to be like in serious sort of um, struggle. Like, yeah, they 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 like they think that struggling is something like being sad a bit and and and, and you have to exercise more to to get out of it. But it, <laughs> like, it's generally something that is much much heavier sometimes and much much harder to get out of. So, yeah, get yourself a pair of trainers. <laughs> Imagine if everybody had had that attitude as society was developing. Like the first person to invent a bug. It's like, nope, I'm dying. Break it. You've got to come up with it. Farming? No, I'm taking that shit to the grave, bitches. (laughs) Yeah, it wouldn't have worked, would it? Uh, I mean, it's it's even like uh, uh, at the beginning and middle of COVID where people were going through uh, serious 
serious financial issues because they haven't been allowed to work because everyone's on lockdown. And uh, I mean, I was chatting with someone on Twitter who um, don't even know how I got into the conversation with them, but they they were um, a porn star and they were saying that uh, people should have at least 10 grand in their bank account. It's their fault if they don't have that money there. And I said, like, I mean, people haven't always been in this situation where they, they can actually save up. But even if they are the sort of person that does save up and has some money there, there's a chance that, oh, look, my car broke down. I needed to spend that money. Oh, this happened. Oh, that happened. And all of a sudden, even if you have prepared for this situation where you do have a big wedge in the bank, it's gone because of something that happens in life. Life throws curveballs all the time. And the fact that there was no compassion there and it was everyone else's fault for not having 10 grand saved in the bank. Like, really? (laughs) If you're in a lockdown for a year, how long is 10 grand going to last you if you've got rent and utilities and food bills? Yeah. yeah, it's just not. No. I mean, the funniest example of something like this that I ever heard was like a, a self-help guru in America. And she was about 30 and she was saying that she doesn't understand what all these people were complaining about not being able to pay off their student loans, not being able to afford a house. And she said, here are the tips that I would give for getting yourself out of debt. And this is how I did it. And the first step was to borrow money off your parents to buy a condo to rent out to guarantee an income. (laughs) Oh, my God. Right. (laughs) And how many people's parents can actually afford that? (laughs) My parents can't even afford to lend me a tenner most times. (laughs) No, I mean, that's absolutely crazy. And I, I think the the average person isn't so privileged to come from a background where they have that. But then that that's the problem, isn't it? It's people who don't have it as hard throughout their life don't realize how hard it is, even for the average person. And when you consider the average person, half the people have it harder than them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this this feels like the modern day version of sort of. Uh, oh, they don't have bread, let them eat cake or let something like cake. that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's literally that, right? It's, it's a, like, you, you, yeah, I, I, I dislike this sort of attitude a lot when I see it uh, because it generally lacks fantasy in terms of like how bad things could, can really be. Even if it's just sort of mental uh, issues, right? And not sort of economic ones, it can be detrimental in, in a way that is debilitating and uh, very hard to get out of. Well, in a really sweeping and clever way of bringing it back around to the topic. (laughs) (laughs) There's a topic. Yeah. This is one of the arguments for painful experiences with art. They can teach us moral lessons. So by feeling the pain of those that we're reading about or watching, it can teach us moral lessons like not everybody can afford to borrow money off their parents to buy a condo. (laughs) Or not everybody had... You know, people struggle. There are orphans who can't afford to kind of feed themselves or they're in dangerous situations. So it can teach us moral lessons and kind of increase the amount of empathy that exists within society. So long as the people are actually understanding what they're watching and taking it in and learning those moral lessons, of course. Yeah, I mean, some people do still get quite resistant to the ideas that are put in front of them and then go, well, they shouldn't have been yeah. poor in the first place. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you know, they're kind of missing the point of the fact that some people don't have that choice and not everybody starts anywhere in the same rung as them. Many people have started at a point further along the line or have got a lucky opportunity. You know, some people have really started bottom rung, but somehow got lucky. And it's very rare, but it does happen. And then the the crazy thing is this person that got lucky and suddenly is doing really well in their life forgets what it's like for everyone else who was like them who didn't get that lucky break. Well, it's their own fault they didn't get one. Well, really? You got lucky. <laughs> you got picked out of a crowd. Uh, you yeah, know. But that doesn't feel as good as saying it's because I did the right things and I made the correct choices, right? And because it doesn't feel as good, it's just you cannot attribute it to luck. Yeah. Right? And that's that's how it get it gets started all of this. Yep. Yeah. Oh, everybody likes the idea that we're all the author of our own destiny, and it's yeah. just nonsense. We're all the heroes <laughs> of our story. Yeah. I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm the fat guy. <laughs> Absolutely a background character. Uh, okay. um, I just want to... Um, Danny asked a little while ago if I could address... Yes, it. I was going to bring that one back up. That's what I was just scrolling up through okay. the chat to, to, to find. Can potentially cause a consistent negative emotion. And I think it's kind of difficult i think it can certainly exacerbate things that are already there and i think so say listening to a depressing song whatever that song might be for you if you're in a good happy bouncy mood when you listen to it even if it's a song that will make you burst out into tears when you're upset i don't think it's likely to bring you down out of happiness. Unless you know, it's attached to an experience that, you know... Yeah, that's fair. I was going to ask if we could touch upon things which are actually properly triggering in a little while. But as to the question that Danny asked, I think it can certainly be used to perpetuate it. But I don't know if I would agree that it can necessarily be the cause. Uh, hopefully that's addressed it to your satisfaction, because I'm not sure. Because <laughs> that's all you're getting. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it depends what we mean by consistent as well, because a consistent negative emotion can be just being sad for ages, or it can be depression. And I don't think music's going to cause depression unless it's as Joe mentioned, something that triggers a proper emotional traumatic recollection or experience, but certainly perpetuating. Mm. I mean, an example of, of what I meant there is there's a, a couple of songs that were my dad's favorite songs. And, you know, sometimes even if I'm in a good mood and they, they come on, they, they make me cry. Sometimes they don't. You know, but sometimes they, they have that power over me and it completely changes my my mood because it, it puts me in a time of remembering things with him and thinking about things that I can never experience with him again. Um, and, and that is because it's not the, the music that's the cause there. It's the, the music caused the memory, which caused the sadness and so on. So it's not a direct, a direct cause of the music in that regard. Yeah, I agree. And um, going back to what Kristen said about trigger warnings and trigger responses 
that's something that I was hoping to bring up later as well, as a, a sort of side effect of one of the responses to this paradox. Um, okay, so I'm thinking maybe go through some of the more common responses, and you'll recognize some of these because a lot of them are what you've all brought up. Sounds so good. The first group, of, the first group of responses are called compensatory, compensatory uh, explanations. In that the negative <coughs> emotion brings with it some kind of reward. Um, so the first one, I'm going to have to go to my notes here because there's a lot of them and I can't remember them in order. <laughs> I'm not that bright. But that would be so so, like with the control thing. It's a reward, but it's not necessarily in itself a positive emotion. No, exactly. It, it brings about something in replacement for the feeling that it, it's more than just the negative emotion that we're seeking. It's It brings us something further that compensates for us having to deal with that emotion. Um, and the first one is one that I mentioned earlier, Aristotle's doctrine of catharsis. Um, so this explanation is that the kind of artwork that we're engaging with allows us to purge or purify excess or unruly emotions through engagement with the work. So like listening to a sad tune might help us purge an excess of sadness or um, watching a horror film might help us to get rid of some of that excess nervous energy. Um, if we're feeling melancholy, engaging with the work might help us to bring out that melancholy and deal with it, that kind of thing. Yep. So, I mean, that's, that's akin to quite a lot of things that we've already said. Yeah. The second one in the compensatory is the value of knowledge. So this kind of art can teach us truths about the human experiences and the emotions that are attached to our human experience. So we can learn what it what it means to be human. We can learn what it means to engage in the kind of emotions that we might not necessarily deal with in our day-to-day -day lives, but we know others go through. And it teaches us more than our own experience of the world, but others' experience of the world. Kind of getting an emotion by proxy. Yeah, pretty much. Um, the next one is the value of art itself. So engaging with this kind of work, it's worth engaging with simply because of the actual craft that's gone into it. The emotional engagement is just something that's necessary to it. It's part of the experience of it, one could say. It's part of the craft. The feeling of fear that comes from a horror film, the feeling of sadness that comes from a tragedy, the feeling of elation that comes from watching Rocky and swinging your fists with it. <laughs> Part of the craft of the filmmaking or the literature is to create these emotions. So we, we can appreciate how well done that is simply by the emotions that it brings out in us. Yeah, and no, I actually think that's, that's quite a good one. If, if, if something can actually make you feel disgusted, I mean, that's, that's one that we... We were talking about um, the other day, but we haven't spoken much about tonight uh, on stream is the feeling of disgust, you know, being absolutely repulsed by what you're watching or looking at. Then, it, and that's the intent. Obviously, if that's the intent of it, um, then it's done its job and it's done it well. And that feeling of disgust might make you think and uh, about a number of things about yourself, about the thing and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, no, no. Uh, <laughs> we can teach us lessons about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's also uh, going to the disgust kind of thing. Say an arachnophobe seeing an incredibly realistic painting of a spider. They can appreciate how fucking incredible the painting is and the skill and talent that went into it, but still be disgusted by the final product in a more basic way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that the appreciate the appreciation of the art just brings with it some kind of negative emotion, but that's just part and parcel of the experience of the art and the appreciation of it. And the negative emotion lets you know that it's actually close, or that at least the negative feeling lets you know that it's actually close to being the real thing. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's a reality check in a, in a, in a way. Oh my god, this this made me feel a certain way. Like we were talking about how um, in the, in the movie The Descent. And it's it. Uh, I'm not scared by the the, the monster bit. I, uh, it's the bit where they're crawling through the caves, and you know they're they're having these cave-ins and they're getting stuck and and all of that. And it's like all that feeling. And I'm not even claustrophobic, but in that, yeah, I felt really claustrophobic watching that. So that was obviously really well done, or at least done well enough for me to do that. And I can appreciate them doing that in in, in the movie. Uh, I wasn't going to seek feeling like that and i i don't want to feel like that but the fact i did feel like that meant that it it it, it connected with me and it it taught you valuable things and it and that is one of the values of art is that it can teach us things yeah never going in that. caves like that again uh, again yeah but when did i ever go in caves so apparently i feel like i did there you go it <laughs> <laughs> can help us remember previous lives <laughs> um okay so another compensatory um answer to this is the moral lessons which is one that we've discussed as well engaging with certain types of artwork can teach us moral lessons and it can help us to better understand morality, what it is, how it functions, or give us new ways of looking at morality. Um, if you think of something like the Kasparov brothers or War and Peace, great works of, or even something as simple as Oliver Twist, we can learn moral lessons from the work. And even though it might cause these feelings of sadness or horror, the moral lessons that we go through are what we're getting from it, not the negative emotions, they're just part and parcel of learning these moral lessons. Mm. Kind of like punching the bully in the face and he beats you up. <laughs> you know, part and parcel of learning not to hit somebody twice your size when you can't fight is, <laughs> you know, it's what teaches you the moral lesson. <laughs> and then there's the appeal to beauty. And this is just that there are aesthetic pleasures associated with the artwork itself, the expression of the artwork, and how it's represented. And these appreciations are just, they're enough to make it worth feeling these emotions, because it is part of the beauty of it, is that it can invoke these emotions. 
Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that that's kind of akin to a point that was brought up a, a couple of points ago, but it was like we were discussing, core. Cool, it might be a bit, even about six months ago now, Dave, in, in our stream, Can Beauty Be Objective? And we were talking about how there are standards of beauty in art and film and things like that. So we're not talking about, you know, looking at, a, at nature and our personal preference. We're talking about a particular standard. So a horror film is supposed to make you feel tense a gore film is supposed to make you go in disgust um and, and that sort of thing and again that's that's the art form and you can appreciate it doing that well yeah well that would be going back to one of the previous points so wouldn't it yeah and that's what i'm saying it seems a bit linked to to one of the previous points a couple of points ago like i mean maybe i, I jumped ahead <laughs> no no i think with these answers i don't think any one of them is the answer. I think you could say that all of these things are part of the aesthetic process. They're part of the understanding of art. They're part of the reason we seek out art. And with there being different art forms, each of these can apply to different art forms. Do you it's think, sort of like an... Sorry. Sorry, do you think that any are just intrinsically different? So, say, is music intrinsically different in how this should be measured to a film uh, probably not yeah. though because music is used in film but well no that um music in film is used slightly different to say um, music on an album true yeah yeah they're used for painting a picture they're especially if it's a film score aesthetic. yeah yeah it's part of the overall if you consider the film reel, the canvas, and the sound as part of the canvas, they're painting onto that with the soundtrack. Yeah. Whereas music, like listening to Beethoven, listening to Limp Biscuit, God knows why anybody would, <laughs> listening to Slayer, um, or even Robbie Williams, they're all very different kinds of music who elicit responses in different ways to different people. Or even sometimes to the same people. Yeah. Sorry, Kristen, I missed what you said there. I was saying I listened to a worrying amount of Robbie Williams. <laughs> He's got a couple of good songs. It Karma does. Karma is an incredible song. Which one? Karma Killer. I no, don't know if I know that one. Uh, uh, it is so good. <laughs> I... Uh... I, I remember hearing back in the days when I used to, to go to gigs and things like that, um, one of my favorite bands was Pit Shifter. And uh, one of my friends had met Robbie Williams at a previous Pit Shifter gig. Apparently he was a big fan of them. And he had said, said in a, a magazine interview that I've never seen. So obviously this is purely anecdotal conjecture, but apparently he wanted to do some industrial tracks. And I was like, oh, That'd be really good. And I have been waiting about 20 years for this. So, Robbie, if there's any chance you're listening, where's your industrial album, man? Karma <laughs> <laughs> Killer includes the line, I hope you choke on your Bacardi and Coke. And not, I don't know what is. <laughs> and also, do you remember Gary Newman? Yes. Yeah. He's got an industrial song, which is fantastic. I'm sure he does. I mean, I, my, my favorite one is the one that he hit the cover of his own song, Cars, that he did with Fear Factory and his singing on that track. But I mean, that's, that's obviously going 
turning it into a bit of a, a new metal track back in the day. Um, but I can imagine that he has done some good things. I've not heard it. I'm imagining that it was actually good. But diversion aside, I also wanted to ask, so we've touched upon <laughs> music and film and painting. Uh, we've touched briefly upon literature and stuff like that as well. What would your opinions as a group be on how this applies to video games so i think video games the the big part of that is the 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 achievement of completing it you don't generally play a game to hate it do you um most games have some form of goal even games without a story have some form of reward i mean for example minecraft on creative mode um it seems pretty pointless to me but you know i can i can understand why people enjoy creating these things out of of nothing they get to play god uh, <laughs> um so i i I don't think that I think games are very much reward system based. Have you got an example of a game that you would never get a reward feeling from? No, but there are still so this is approaching it from this whole compensatory approach still. But there are games which are designed to make you feel sad. Is that the, as in the story? Uh yes. Yeah, I mean, then that's just going back to the whole engaging with the piece. If it actually manages to make you feel that way, then um, it, it's doing the right thing. It's it's like a couple of the, the, the points that were raised. Um, the appreciation but, of the craft. Yeah. Have you played Life is Strange? I no. haven't played it. It's good. Um, but there are certain games where if you think of like a survival horror, um, they're crafted like a horror movie. But you're immersed in them and part of the art of a video game is to get you immersed in it. So even though it makes you feel scared, it's the engagement with the craft that you appreciate. Yeah. This yeah. is kind of part of why I was bringing them up because they're so different as an art form, because your interaction is active, not passive. Yeah. yeah, I think all of the things that we said so far can be applied to video games, but especially like there are some things that are even more sort of um, applicable to video games, I feel, or in, in, to a greater degree, especially because like it, it seems that they bring you closer to this sort of glass wall to, to the experience of how you would actually feel because you have some agency, you can, you can interact in certain ways. And I think actually, speaking of, of sort of games, I think... Um, role-playing games like sort of Dungeons and Dragons and stuff are sort of even furthering that. I had to bring it up. I'm sorry, but oh, I, no, I, no, it's I, perfect. like, because they, they give you even more degrees of freedom in this and, and you actually can like, you, you have so many degrees of freedom that is like, apart from your sensory input data, right. It's, it's very close to how you would actually, or you, you can sort of act how you, or imagine how you would feel in that situation. If no one's got a rule book on them, have they? <laughs> yeah so on so we start on page 12 and <laughs> yeah that's a really good point because like when my current character dies i will be genuinely sad i yeah a lot of time and emotional investment in this character that i've spent literally hundreds of hours crafting and growing and yeah 
Yeah, I well, think I think there is a very strong power in that in in in, some, in the sense of exploring different ways of thinking and, and living and and sort of emotional setups as well. I think because because you have this freedom to create sort of anything pretty much both worldwide and in terms of how you want to approach the game i think there's a lot of power there in terms of really sort of experimenting as well with with both sort of attitudes you can have towards life but also sort of emotional again engagements and and all of that so that i think these are very powerful tools actually along those lines as well i'd uh, um if you've ever played an MMORPG, especially if you played some of the early ones, I really got into EverQuest, which was years and years before World of Warcraft came out. Um, and it was actually one where you you basically trained up everything, your, your ability to run, your ability to swim, your ability for uh, a particular conjuring skill. And, you you know, if you couldn't, if you hadn't practiced your spells, they might fizzle in battle and things like that. And absolutely everything was tied in. You, you act everything you had to train up to to make sure you could do it um when you when you died uh you could go and rescue your corpse but it would decompose and if you didn't get it you'd lose it um and uh you know there were there were people who actually ended up um committing suicide because they lost their corpse and they lost their epic weapons and things like that uh because they they died in an area that was too dangerous for them to get and their their, their body decomposed and everything was gone that they had um which is absolutely crazy and in fact whilst we were playing it i ran a guild on there and um one of my members actually uh just collapsed and he had a friend who was also in the guild and collapsed and we held him a, a funeral in there and you know it was all text-based at the time you didn't have everybody on there but it was such a real world you were you were fully engaged in this mystical world and it was really hard stopping playing the game you know after having played it for a few years and it's like i'm not really getting anything out of it anymore but I also can't let it go. It's kind of like my other life. So I can imagine it's a similar sort of thing for how you feel about your, your D and D characters and, and uh, as well. It's yeah. Yeah. I think like D and D in general is, is a very interesting like art form. Like I, I know this is sort of on a tangent, but it's very interesting because you can explore genuinely things that wouldn't be explored usually in other, both in video games and in film and, and in books, because it, it 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 operates on a different time scale. It can afford to to look into moments that usually wouldn't be looked into, and and it's sort of like at a, a, a much sort of lower level in a way. So so I really like I really think there's a lot of a lot there that is very interesting in terms of both psychology and and also like related to the topic. And um, one thing I would say about tabletop RPGs as well is you're both the artist and the engagement the engager yep. of the art because you're entering into a world that might have been crafted by somebody else but you're also engaging in the crafting of the world and the story yeah. and how it plays out yeah, yeah it's something it's something special it's co-op yeah. storytelling isn't it well, yeah yeah everybody's just as invested in the production and development of the world and what's happening in it are you saying that tabletop rpgs are communism <laughs> Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> oh, the Americans will stop playing it now. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, it had to be thrown in. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to touch on whether we considered video games to be in the same kind of area with mm. this, because I do think that it's unfair that a lot of people don't consider them an art form, because there is a lot of craft, there is a lot of vision, there's a lot of everything that goes into art goes into video games and painting it as kids entertainment where you're a little red plumber running around punching bricks just isn't what it is anymore and i think this kind of discussion applies as much to what they are now as it does to any other art form oh even then back in the day there were rpgs i mean there was uh mystic quest legend i think in america it was called final fantasy mystic quest and that was my, you know, I think that was on the the Super Nintendo. And, and I mean, even that had a, a pretty good story, especially for a kid. Um, but then, you know, the first game I was really, really blown away was Final Fantasy VII. The, I mean, the story and the characters and everything in that. Now, I know it's, uh, I know it's been remade, but the originals are a blocky piece of crap now. But that aside... It's still an amazing game for all the mechanics that went into it, the entire storyline, the characters, and yeah. So I'd agree with you. I mean, it it's far more than people realize, especially when you get a good game. And I think that's like we're saying. We've mentioned, you know, a good horror movie. A good horror movie is more than the jump scares. It's got the good story. It's got the character development. You buy into the premises. It's the same with a good game. You know, don't get me wrong, you can have a throwaway terrible horror movie that you find entertaining. You can have a terrible game that you find entertaining too. You know, there, there's there's different reasons you might be playing these things. But when we're talking about a game as a form of art, we're talking about that top shelf sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Even if you were to sort of say, well, no, it's not art. Um, if you were to take Thomas Hulker's, um distinctions between art and kitsch it fits the bill for what he argues is art it can cause moral dilemmas it can raise moral questions you can appreciate the craft you can appreciate the brush strokes so to speak um and digital art is hard to create with some games it's not even so to speak with the brush oh no no yeah i'm just but yeah, it, it does fit the bill of what many would consider art because it hits those various points. And um, Super Mario might not be, it might just be entertainment. Um, but a finely crafted game that gets you involved in the story, draws you in, makes you ask questions, brings about questions about morality, what it's like to be in a certain position, life questions even. Um, these things all count as what most people consider art. So I would consider certain video games to be art. And if we think about these engagements that we've been speaking about, a good video game fits these bills because it, it can bring in a compensatory kind of experience. Um, it can bring in conversion experiences. Um, it can be cathartic. Icarus raises a, a good one. The Last of Us, it's got it's, it's a form of art because of the moral dilemmas and the story it. and everything. Right, well, I actually started playing it on, on the old PS3, um, but I found the controls really, really clunky, um, and I just couldn't get into it. But I, I, I was loving what I was 
you know, watching and, and, and reading, but I was just having so much trouble with things that would be really basic. I know what I need to do. I just need to run around this bit and sort of do this thing and hit that and then I'm done. But it was just like, it's taking me 20 minutes to do something that, you know what, if it was either a decent control setup or especially keyboard and mouse, uh, <laughs> I'd be doing this really, really easily. Um, I wish they would come out with a, a PC version of Last of Us because I hear great things from the people that manage to, to push through the control system. Um, of course, you do get some people go, the controls weren't bad. It's like, okay. <laughs> uh, but they were. <laughs> You can get used to bad controls. I just couldn't, especially as I tend to play on keyboard and mouse. Uh, so for me to switch to playing something on a control, um, it it's a little bit um, uh, more difficult. But as as Icarus mentions, they're they're making a TV series based on that game, and I think that'd be absolutely fantastic and incredibly engaging. Okay, so the next group are called conversionary explanations, and this is the idea that the emotion is transformed into something more agreeable in the context of the artistic appreciation. The first is Hume's of tragedy, his what it means to appreciate a tragedy. So he highlights that the value that is gained from the artistic appreciation and the artistic expression and the lessons we learn, the pleasure of understanding these things is greater than the negative emotion that we get from whatever we are experiencing. And as such, it doesn't just envelope those negative emotions. It, it overwhelms them and overpowers them. And it sort of, it is a greater experience than the actual negative emotion. And that he feels that's why people are drawn to these things in a simplistic explanation. Mm -hmm. The next one is... There are no real-life implications of the negative emotions that we feel. So the spectators, there's no real-life uh, kind of implications. They call for no actions, and they cause no real harms. Therefore, the emotions themselves must be so altered by the conditions that they come from that they are recognizable as said emotions, but still they are not recognizable as said emotions, but are still capable of being experienced enjoyed for the sake of the experience. I mean, in and that this, regard, that comes back to them being feelings rather than actual emotions. Emotions, yeah. It's sort of like Kendall Walton's explanation of quasi-emotions. And, and this is where I wanted to touch on Kristen's thing about triggering experiences. Because for some people, if you grew up in an abusive household and you watch a film where, say, the father's beating the mother that might trigger an actual proper emotional response that causes you to turn off that TV or causes you to avoid reading that book about the boy who was kidnapped or the three females held in a basement and constantly tortured in Minneapolis or wherever it was. It's something that I've seen discussed a lot recently, which will now hopefully stop somewhat with football. And because... A lot of people have been in situations where England loses and their partner decides that's a good enough reason to beat the shit out to of To beat them, yeah. So now anytime they see a football match, it does actual, genuine emotional harm to them. There's actual real damage being done by this triggering event. 
And I think a lot yeah. of people don't really understand that as well. People look at trigger warnings and think, oh, I'll just grow up. It's just an emotion. And it's not. It's not. No, it's something deeper within your psyche that's brought out and causes you actual emotional harm. So to some degree, the no real life implications isn't quite accurate. And because there are people that do actually feel genuine implications from the experiencing of the painful emotion. But again, it it sort of comes back to they are a particular set within that set, and most people don't experience them, yet still go for that art that produces that emotion. It's another broad strokes thing as opposed yeah. to... Yeah. Okay. The next group is called the Organicist Explanations. So the, the experience, um, the emotion experienced by viewing the art is an essential element in the total experience of that. And it's not the emotion that's desired, it's the experience. So when you think about something like tabletop RPGs or a game that draws you in or a good film that draws you in, it's the experience that you're enjoying. Mm -hmm. Like I watched A Quiet Place 2 the other week, and that was what I enjoyed, hearing the speakers, the creatures coming up behind through the rear speakers and the music slowly building up. So it's not the emotion that I was going for, it's the experience of being there. This is something that we discussed before quite a while ago, actually, because we were discussing how I didn't really get into watching horror films because they don't scare me. And I don't see the point in watching a horror film if it's not achieving the emotional response. Like my example was always, you wouldn't watch a comedy film that doesn't make you laugh. And you brought up one of the previous um, arguments towards this of you watch it for the craft, not necessarily yeah. the, the emotional response. So yeah, that's why I watch horror movies. Yeah, we've had a I... version of this discussion before without even realizing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I think that is one of the things, though, with a with a good horror film. It's like I mentioned earlier. It, it's not just it's not just the fear response. And in fact, I I, I would agree that I, I tend not to find most horrors scary. Uh, you know, the jumpy sometimes, but not necessarily scary. Um, but it's it's actually the the story and the character development and everything that goes into to making them and something that engages me and makes me think and go, "Cool, what if?" Um, that is actually what I enjoy from the experience of them. Yeah. And if you think of back to the old days of, say, the practical effects rather than the CGI, when you see a good practical effect like a head coming off, have you ever seen Damien Omen 2? Nope. There's a bit where a guy gets cut in half in an elevator, in a lift, and it chops him right through the middle. And if you pause that and you go through it frame by frame, you can't see where he becomes the practical effect and it's all very smoothly done and it looks very realistic. And you can kind of appreciate the amount of craft that's gone into that. It might not scare you. It might not disgust you. And even if it does, you can still appreciate how much work has gone into the creation of that. That's mm. why it's so depressing with the prequel for The Thing which was all shot with amazing practical effects, and then they decided yeah. over the top of it with CGI. Yeah, and it just didn't work either, because it, the physics looks slightly wrong. Um, whereas with the puppetry and the practical effects, everything, okay, 
it still looks a bit fake, but it looks more real. I know that sounds a bit of a weird thing to say. I think a good example of this would be for anyone, and this is quite a big gap in when they were made, watching uh, An American Werewolf in London versus watching Underworld. I don't watch Underworld. Really? I really enjoyed them. I think they're good films, but if you compare the werewolf transformation, the stuff in Underworld is really good CGI where it's done, but even though it's, well, probably 30 years later, it doesn't hold a candle to something like American Werewolf because that, I mean, the effects in the rest of that film are shockingly terrible, but that transformation scene is horrifying today. I can feel his pain. Um, okay, so that that sort of brings us on to the first type of organicist explanation in that it's the satisfaction that you get from the artwork. And you can sort of get a... Okay, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Icarus has done it to me again. <laughs> but what is experience but emotions persevering? <laughs> <laughs> what is beef? <laughs> but a cow persevering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so this satisfaction thing, it's you can appreciate the craft in that it might have brought about this horrible emotion, like the American werewolf scene just discussed. It brings out this horrific response. You can feel the guy's pain and you can feel his suffering and the way it looks is horrifying. But you can appreciate that it's brought out that appropriate emotion in you. The, the work, the craft has done its job. So you might be horrified, but you appreciate how they've done it. Yeah, you're horrified, but you were supposed to be horrified. That yeah. whole point. Yeah, and that, that sort of brings back to the discussion about whether it's rational to feel those kind of things. If you were to laugh at it, you might not be particularly rational, and because you're not supposed to laugh at it, it's not a comedy, but it's brought about an appropriate emotion. And that's the emotion that they were driving for. So like you say, you can appreciate it. And the next one is narrative structure. And again, this is kind of similar in, and it also kind of relates to video games, as we were saying. And the value of working through the emotions connected to a work of art via immersion in in its structure is an essential element in the experience, and we value that experience as a whole. Um, and we, the um, negative emotion that comes with it, is just part of that experience that we appreciate and value. Okay. The next group is revisionary explanations. Negative emotions, nor the feelings they include, are intrinsically unpleasant or undesirable. So there is nothing particularly odd about appreciating art that includes such emotions or feelings mm. in other words it's it's not intrinsically unpleasant to feel those negative emotions and they are not in and of themselves disagreeable they can be unproblematically enjoyed as such the negative part about negative emotions is based on the evaluations of the objects of those emotions so losing a parent is a different type of negative emotion that comes with a kind of intrinsic unpleasantness, which is different to feeling the horrifying nature of the American werewolf in London scene. There, there is nothing particularly intrinsically 
unpleasant in that because it's just the object is some make-believe thing that we see and we just enjoy. So um, it's detaching it from reality. Yeah. You, you could you could say that it's bad, like that feeling those emotions is usually bad because of the things that make that cause the feeling. Sort of, yeah. So because like the bad thing is the parent dying, not the emotion itself. So if the emotion itself exists, removed from the bad thing happening, then it's there's nothing wrong with it. Anymore. There's nothing, yeah. Which um, I, I kind of like this one. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. It, it lost me for a moment because it sounded like it was just saying, bad things aren't intrinsically bad. It's like, well... No, no. But, yeah, I probably didn't explain it very well. No, I get it now. Uh, yeah. Okay, and the final group um, is deflationary explanations. So despite appearances, there are no negative emotions or feelings that are actually aroused in us by these artworks. So the first one would be considered artistic emotions. The emotions that come from art are only analogous to the emotions in life experiences. They're distinct from the life experience emotion in a sort of pleasurable tone, motivational tone, and behavioral implication. And these differences mean they are not the same kinds of emotions or feelings. So like we said earlier, we're not motivated to call the cops on the killer, even though we have this feeling of terror about what's going to happen to the person on the screen. Yeah. They don't motivate us to do things. So they're not the same kind of emotions that we would feel if we were experiencing those things in real life. So kind of like with uh, the film Coco, when the grandma dies, I cry. But it's not the same emotional response as I'd have when my grandma dies. Yeah, pretty yeah it's analogous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people criticizing video games go for this sort of conflation as well. When when they say you know, of killing someone in a video game is making you that it's the exact same thing as if you were killing someone in real life or something like that, which is seems to me like pretty obviously false, given that <laughs> yeah. you do one and are doing the other one. So like, there must be a difference, right? There is a yeah. If yeah. video games influenced real life, I would have spent my teenage years walking around dark rooms listening to electronic music, eating pills. Hang on. <laughs> Wait a minute, you just described my teenage years. Yeah. I, oh, shit, mine. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> no, oddly, I mean, out, out of all of the games that we've, we've all played, that's been the major influence uh, for all of us. <laughs> Well, it's like the other one. If video games really did influence you, I would be running around eating mushrooms that are magic <laughs> and make you grow big. Yeah. And if 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 you if you could put some other ones in there, though, you know, if if uh, video games really influenced life, I'd have my own theme park and I'd be a multimillionaire. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, you can come and meet my Pikachu next time you, you come around here. And, <laughs> <laughs> Is that I a mean, proposition? <laughs> the, the sense of satisfaction that you get from killing somebody in an online shooter, is a, it's a sense of satisfaction, but it's a different kind of emotion than you that you would get when you kill somebody in real life. Well, I hopefully. mean, I wouldn't know. <laughs> do, do we have homework now? We have to actually go and experience <laughs> you have this. To go out and kill so somebody. Weekend, exactly. <laughs> at least, at least ten. Everyone. Yeah, we have to make it statistically significant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Okay, maybe something more relatable that something must have happened to at least a couple of us in our life. The difference between getting into a fight in the real world and playing Street Fighter. Yeah. Yeah, it seems it seems obviously at least at some level distinct, right? Like that, that was my point. And yes. I think it connects to this. No, no, I agree. Um, I was just being silly, yeah. but I was just saying if there's something that we can relate it to, we can imagine, yeah. you know, that that the killing one would definitely be equally different if not more different than actually doing that act so in other words please don't go out and kill anyone just to see if it feels the same as what it's like in a game (laughs) i don't think street fighter is a good example because if i could shoot fireballs out of my hands i'd probably get into a lot more fights (laughs) yeah yeah uh streets of rage (laughs) virtual fighter Oh, oh blimey. That's an old one. <laughs> okay, so the next one is denial of ordinary emotions. Um, so this is sort of similar in that the responses that we get are nothing like the ordinary emotions that we get. Um, the emotional response is exhausted by properly appreciated reactions like being moved by a work's beauty and its expression. So the emotional content that we feel is a different kind of emotional content and is subsumed by our appreciation of the medium. Yeah. As you say, it's similar. I don't think we really need to go into that. Yeah. Again. And the final one, you'll all be glad to know, because I'm kind of boring. <laughs> um, the make-believe example. Spectators are only performing in... When we engage with the work, we're sort of engaging in a a social contract of make-believe. So we allow ourselves to feel these quasi-emotions as part of the experience of engaging with the art. And and the assumption is that these make-believe states of emotion are not inherently displeasing, and therefore there is no real problem with people tolerating or pursuing these experiences. So does that essentially make viewing art in a gallery the same as being a in a pantomime, you're... Not necessarily. Um, I think this one more relates to, like you say, a pantomime, but also watching a play or watching a good film or hearing a good radio play. You're allowing yourself to be not entirely fooled by these things, but you're engaging with the work in such a way that you put yourself in the position of the characters in whatever it is that's going on and you allow yourself to experience those. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd almost put it like, um, how we, uh, we, we were speaking about, well, I, I've been researching truth a bit recent recently, and there's the, uh, deflationary theories of truth as well. And one of them is the performative theory. And what that's talking about is the fact that we're not actually talking about truth when we're speaking of truth. We're talking about our attitudes towards something. Oh, yes, I accept this as true. Um, and, And we're not actually talking about the truth thing. And in the same way, this performative theory that you sort of mentioned at the end, it's like, well, I'm not actually feeling these emotions. I'm just having these feelings and allowing myself to somewhat suspend my disbelief to fully engage with it. I'm I'm having a general experience that it could play out like the emotion, but not all the way. And again, it addresses it as, uh, you know, <laughs> Dave, the chat. 
Uh, it's yeah, great. You got to love people like this. Uh, <laughs> does it also come back a bit to what I was mentioning with uh, video games, where you're becoming an active receiver, not just a passive receiver of this yeah. stuff? And I mean, if you think about this make-believe one, you're it is kind of like you say the interactive part. The interactive part of tabletop role-playing games is you engage in the make-believe that you're a part of this scenario and mm. part of the emotional responses come from engaging in this make-believe. It's not so much a suspension of disbelief, but an actual participation in it. Yeah. Um, no, I, I agree with that. And I think that that is a big part of it. It, it is that suspense of uh, disbelief. Um, <laughs> and obviously, as we mentioned earlier, it's not the full suspension of uh, disbelief as well, because if it was, you'd be fully engaged in the emotion and you would be running out the door if something scared you or, you know, something made you jump, you might be lashing out. And however, you would react to those situations, whereas you don't. Uh, but you do put yourself in that and, you know, you you believe your, your character, but not wholly uh, believe that you're your character in these things. Um, I genuinely like to see how people would react if you went to the cinema to watch a film and phoned for police. Yes. Yeah. Just witness a murder. Like, <laughs> just properly distraught and properly lean into it and just see what happens. <laughs> yeah, it'd be awesome. <laughs> I mean, you'd get arrested for wasting police time. But. Yeah. I suppose you'd have to go somewhere where uh, you know you just have that. Uh, there's no no real crime, so you have to phone the police officer just to give him something to do. Yeah, you know, like uh... <laughs> welcome to Wales. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So we're all going on holiday to Wales, and we know what we're going to be doing then. <laughs> <laughs> but do you have cinemas in Wales? <laughs> yeah, I've got one just down the road. It's like a five minute walk. Oh, nice. <laughs> Even better. That's why I went to see a quiet place too. Uh, I, I know that you do actually have uh, yeah. in Wales. I was, I was being silly, <laughs> just just in case that wasn't clear. <laughs> we're going to see the Candyman reboot at the end of next month. Oh, uh, really? Ones which talk. Uh, sorry, Chris, you uh, cut out there. I said next year, aren't Wales planning on putting in some ones which talk? <laughs> but it's more fun having the organist at the front of the cinema playing fast-speed music. <laughs> We're still on 12 frames per second film. <laughs> ah, brilliant. The uh, the chat's gone a bit crazy, hasn't it? I'm loving it, honestly. I find it so amusing. I mean, for the people that are listening back on the podcast version, just to, just to fill you in, um, as does happen sometimes, some uh, person who... I imagine is a troll. I, I hope yeah, that they're not really yeah. this person. I think they're trolling and rather than being genuinely like this um, has, has come in. And their handle is why non-believers are idiots. Um, and they're talking about how science is fake and stuff like that. And considering we're, 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 uh, we may be atheists, but we're having a, a philosophy stream, uh, as most of our um, uh, streams tend to be, um, 
and, and we tend not to do, discuss religion all that much. And uh, it's just quite funny that some people actually waste their time coming and doing this, whether they're being serious or whether they're they're trolling. I just don't know how anyone is actually so sad and lonely that they feel that this is a productive way to spend their time. It's uh, incredibly ridiculous. I'm having a great time, honestly, reading that. So, like, I, I'm enjoying it. If, if, but then, yeah, and in I, fact, I find it amusing. Yeah, you, that uh, they're claiming that 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 science is fake and they're not trolling as well. So it's actually someone yeah, who yeah. who thinks yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. This isn't as unusual as. Do you remember that time when we were recording a podcast and someone randomly joined <laughs> the Discord call? Yeah. Yeah. No, it was yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't Discord, was it? We we used to record our podcasts on uh, Teamspeak. Team. Yeah, nice. and nice. Uh, there was a there was an issue where my Teamspeak server, you know, didn't work, and I I reformatted um, and set up the server again, but I forgot to put a password on. And this this lady came in, hi as a kite, and started just in the middle of a um, a philosophy of politics um or political philosophy stream start it's just i want to talk about this man <laughs> then, then martin started swearing at her in german yes yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a but, shame they're not trolling because trolling can be an art and therefore we could actually appreciate yeah, yeah but we, could, we could bring it back yeah <laughs> unfortunately no they're just dumb yeah, it, it seems that way, unfortunately. Um, but there you go. <laughs> Icarus, though, what is tech but science persevering? <laughs> no, no, you shouldn't stop with them at all. Uh, you should always do those. I, I think it's a, a fun challenge to make me just uh, piss myself laughing in the middle of someone else speaking. and or, or, in fact, whilst I'm speaking, I completely lose my train of thought and I've got no clue what's been said for the last 10 minutes when it happens whilst I'm talking. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Um, so getting back on <laughs> onto things... What were, what, where were we? Who are we? <laughs> feelings, feelings, right? No, we just finished the last uh, <laughs> deflationary theory. Was there, was there yeah. anything else we had to do after that? Nope, that's all of them gone through. Ah, cool. But as you can see, a lot of your responses were very similar to the kind of standard responses. We and even some very different ones that were excellent points as well. So we done a philosophy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even I think come up with a good point. Yes. Did <laughs> you made us think about things in a way that we weren't on the path on? In fact, if you hadn't said a couple of bits, I don't think they'd have even been brought up tonight. Yeah, I agree. I may be an idiot, but I'm a useful one. <laughs> Sometimes, not often. <laughs> I can relate. I just have the papers that I can type from and bring these to us, so I'm useful. <laughs> I also think they are all sort of all responses seem compatible to me. They are not like mutually exclusive. Yeah. Like you can all they're not. Yeah, you can all group them together, and and I think they would it would provide like some great um, responses. Like in in it. an yeah, overall thing, I don't think they contradict yeah. each other. No, no, they do not. No. At least that it doesn't seem to me that they do. 
I think that's, that's the same with a lot of philosophy, though. Like when you're looking into things like truth and knowledge and things like that, it, it's all talking about all the different aspects of a thing rather than this one thing is the thing in its entirety. And I feel like all of those responses that you brought up sort of just describe this this entire aspect. And yeah, do you know what? A couple of them might explain this one in its entirety, but then you've got this situation where they don't apply to and, you know, but they all work as an overall picture of why people might seek things that discuss them. Yeah, true. But there are things in philosophy as well that like, for example, theories of mind, right? Like they are, seem to be mutually exclusive. If you, if you take sort of the yeah. hard problem in consciousness, then they will sort of have these different positions yeah. um, or argue against each other. Uh, but, yeah. Morality as well, where yeah. you can't have deontology and consequentialism both being completely correct. Yeah, yeah, that's, so, yeah. that's true. That's true. Um, uh, again, it's contextual uh, as, as a lot of it is, but, Certain things do seem to be describing, you know, little parts of a bigger picture, whereas other things, yes, as you mentioned, they are incompatible with each other uh, in, in that regard. I think it's part of why a lot of people feel quite intimidated by philosophy. People like to have a yes, this answer, not a yes, but. But. Yeah. 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 And. That's one of the things um, when I did my undergrad, my master's, and I started learning more and more aesthetics. I started getting more of an appreciation for it for these very reasons that there's no real kind of exclusionary answer to any of these things. And they're all really interesting to explore. And it also gave me a greater appreciation for art in and of itself. Yeah. Like you, you can have, like in science, it's, it's easy to, to, do some experiments, I guess, and, and, and find some pretty solid answers. Um, but, but philosophy tends to, tends to operate in, in domains uh, that are more sort of abstract and therefore you, had, you don't have, like, you cannot, you cannot run an experiment to, to work stuff out. You, you, you sort of have to reason on these things, and I find that quite fascinating, honestly. I do. And I mean, you could use experimental philosophy here and interview yeah. people as they come out of the cinema or as they finish a sort of a book group and say, what is it about this film, this film, this book, this piece of art that drew you to it, even though it caused you this thing. But all that would get you is some people might not have access to why they feel it's good. They might just think, well, it scared me. But did it really scare you? Do you know what I mean? So there's deeper levels that can be gone even after getting the experimental data. And because there is no absolute data that can be pointed at, it, it just makes for greater greater discussion. And because you have to actually engage with it and think about it, it, it engages your critical thinking capacities and engages in exploring psychology, how we might respond to things. There's this whole depth to aesthetics that a lot of people just seem to overlook, unfortunately. I find it quite interesting that this whole kind of facsimile of emotion, where it's a feeling, not a true emotion, I think that's a really interesting thing that needs to be examined more that I've not really thought of. But also, in a more flippant way, that means that if you watch porn, you're not having the emotion of lust. You're having the feeling of horny, so it's not a sin. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> 
Well done. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't all a setup for that line. I thought of it halfway through. But it worked. <laughs> it very much did. It definitely did. <laughs> uh, fantastic. So uh, did, did any of you come in tonight with certain ideas about what the topic might be about and, uh, you know, how has that, your, your views changed in any way uh, to, to, to now? I hadn't even really examined it at any depth before now. So I've learned quite a lot. It's been thoroughly entertaining and informative, as Dave-led streams always are. So thank you. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Like I did, I didn't ever really look into sort of aesthetics in, in philosophy. So this introduction was was great. And like some of these thoughts were um, in my mind, I guess, at some points, uh, but they never really came together in this in this sort of systematic way. And I found that really helpful. So yeah, it, it's genuinely very very interesting. Yeah, I loved I loved hearing you guys discuss the topics as well because you came up with new ideas that I hadn't thought of and different ideas to what's in like the literature and things like that. So thank you for the discussion. I really enjoyed it. When you write the paper, I'll expect my name printed as a question. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Me write a paper? <laughs> do you know how much studying I have to do at the moment? <laughs> Nowhere near as much as last year. Well, get you approved that you don't need to write a long paper to to have an impactful paper. So, so maybe true <laughs> two pages and just two, two pages change epistemology, turn it the, around on its head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can do that with, with aesthetics uh, and quote us. So, so we will be forever engraved in the history of philosophy. Okay, I know exactly what the paper to write that'll just destroy everything, and I'll attach your names to the quote. All art is subjective. <laughs> Not all you. science is fake. <laughs> <laughs> Just go for the usual thing, like, all, all art is subjective. It's all subjective, man. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to do a few more aesthetic streams as well at some point. Mm, definitely. I, I really enjoy them. Um, it, it enables you to think. I mean, I, I love all of these streams because they always help me realize where there's there's parts of my thoughts which are missing um and certain aspects which i haven't discovered my uh, or or even thought about myself um i mean there's been a few examples tonight where we've just been sort of on a roll and going yeah, 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 yeah and then ah but what about and it's just ah okay <laughs> my mind's reeling at that uh, and sometimes the, the, the conversation goes on and I'm still stuck thinking about this other thing. <laughs> you just oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's one of the things I enjoy about philosophy as well. It takes these everyday mundane things that we all experience and never think about, but actually probably do subconsciously think about and brings them to the fore and asks us to examine them and kind of question them and see it brings out our subconscious into our conscious and allows mm. us to have a greater understanding of ourselves. Uh, but it's been great, Dave. Thank you very much for tonight. Oh, yeah. nice one. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so just going to quickly check the chat. Is there any uh, questions for, for Dave or anyone else before we go? No, it, it looks just more like uh, that particular person who <laughs> is going on and on and on and on again. So... Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we'll we'll end it there for tonight. Uh, it's a good place as any. Uh, just to I remind like you, they, sorry, Dave. I feel like they should stop eating the paste, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, just to, to remind you, on Thursday, uh, Luke, as in Bearded Heretic, will be joining us for a stream um, on testimony and memory. And uh, he also wants to cover off the null hypothesis because that is something that people get wrong very often. Um, <laughs> and he's annoyed. Yes, and I don't think the conversation that happened in our group uh, <laughs> uh, helped that in any way, shape or form either. <laughs> uh, and then next Tuesday, we're planning on covering off uh, the rationality thesis. Is, is that going to be next Tuesday, Dave? Next Tuesday, yeah. yeah. And all, over the weekend, I'm going to make some slides and actually try and do an actual presentation for it. Awesome. So, I mean, uh, we've got for once, you know, a plan rather than putting it up on the day. <laughs> you know what's happening Thursday and next Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> We're good at this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think might that... try and jump in on Thursday. Sorry? I might try and jump in on Thursday. Oh, do, do, yeah, do. Nice one. Uh, be, uh, be an interesting one as well. Too, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, I will be there, like, uh, provided everything runs smoothly. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Oh, then we might need to get there a little bit early so I can set up uh, five boxes rather than um, uh, four, unless I just put it in the big screen and we're just all there in the middle of it. Uh, depends what your guys' uh, preferences are. We'll have a five-a-side five side team. <laughs> yeah, playing against two, though. <laughs> the guy in the chat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm sure there's enough personalities there to uh, to, to go around. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Kristen and Phil, joining Dave and myself tonight. It's been great to have you here, and uh, hopefully, yes, you're you're both free Thursday to come back. Uh, it'd be it'd be good to have a, a large group on, on stream again, and. Um, Thank you to everybody in the chat, apart from you. You know who you are. Uh, for, <laughs> for joining in, adding your contributions, uh, engaging with others in the chat, and uh, generally just uh, making the entire experience better for us. And thank you to everybody who's watching the rerun and anyone who listens to the podcast as well. So tonight we have been discussed Disgusting. I mean, tonight we have been discussing disgusting things that we seem to be able to seek and enjoy. Or is that the reason we're seeking them at all? It's been an aesthetic stream and that's philosophy. Yeah, philosophy. We've done a philosophy tonight. You wouldn't think that with uh, <laughs> everything we usually do. No. <laughs> Anyway, thank you, everybody. Have yourselves a good one. Uh, you've been watching the Fresh Air Sci-Fi Show. I'm Joe. I'm Dave. I'm Chris. And I'm Philip. Good night, all. Good night, all.